You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Military families welcome the news that the Department of Defense will permanently shut down the Red Hill fuel tanks. We check back in with a military mom who has been willing to share her experience throughout these past four months that her family has been displaced. She had been reluctant to let us use her name and still is, but she was pleased to hear of the DOD decision. That's amazing news. I, I mean, I, I'm very happy that that decision is being made because I feel like if they don't drain it, it's just going to happen again. And what's the latest in your neighborhood? What have you been told? The last I was told is that all of the residential samples came back good, um, but only um, uh, elementary school that was, I guess, in the zone that I'm in uh, tested negative or positive for lead and a faucet that was outside, um, but then uh, you mentioned that it was actually for a sink that was inside. I, I didn't hear about that or I didn't get any sort of notification of that. But as far as the homes go, um, there it's supposed to be next week, I believe, that we're going to be going back home. Okay, so you're just waiting for the all clear from the State Health Department. Yes. And so, gosh, just reflecting on how long it's been and how you've had to make do during these last three yeah. four months yeah it's it's been a long time um i i'm still a little scared honestly to use the water at home but uh hopefully if they're saying it's clean you know there there's integrity behind it and like hopefully you know, they're not just rushing us back into the homes the military did say that you know they've got to make sure that as they defuel that it's safe yeah I mean, the thing that worries me is I don't understand how if one section is still bad, that my section is good um, because it's all on the same water line. So to me, it it seems that if, you know, if, if, if it's contaminated, it's contaminated all throughout. It doesn't just decide like, okay, well, this area was all clear, so um, I'm not going to go back into this section anymore unless they're closing off certain sections. You know, I'm not really sure how that all works. And what would make you, what would give you peace of mind, I guess, once you move back in on just the regular testing? Nothing, honestly. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I feel like the only thing that would give me peace of mind is either moving into another community or moving off the island. And moving off island is not really a realistic option for her as her husband is deployed and she has pets and a young child. But her story as a Navy spouse is like many others. You know, she was still reluctant for us to use her name, and she's still apprehensive about moving back and using the water in her home. Uh, That move now expected to happen next week if the state health department validates the results from the flushing in her neighborhood. Of the 19 affected zones, there are about 12 more to go. What a crazy. And this morning, we also hear from another woman who decades ago came over as part of a family whose military ties to Red Hill run deep. Lynn Borner, Nakeem's father, Charles, was hired to help build the tanks. She's in her 80s now, so she predates the facility. We first talked with her last week as part of a history show on the construction of the tanks. She made the point that her dad had nothing to do with choosing to build the tank so close to the aquifer. His job was to build it, and he was proud of the job that was completed nine months ahead of schedule. The recent headlines have triggered a flood of memories of her dad's work. There was, besides Red Hill, there was the poly in H3. Nakeem says she has been an environmental activist all of her life, having served as president of the Friends of the Earth in Hawaii and active for many decades with the Sierra Club. Uh, her position put her at odds with one of her dad's projects. She shared her thoughts, recalling the day that her dad received an award for his work as the Red Hill Project was made public for the very first time. What a crazy idea to, to dig up a mountain and and put those tanks in there. But it's part of my life, you know. I mean, I was four when uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked, and I saw it from from our upstairs window in naval housing at Pearl Harbor. And my dad was uh, Charlie Borner, who was hired from New York State because he was a tunnel expert, although he was, you know, a young engineer. And he was hired to be the inspector engineer on the project. And so every day, he worked seven days a week, and he was up there at 7 a.m. on Pearl Harbor Day and watched the entire bombing of Pearl Harbor. And, and his crews went down 
into the harbor, you know, to gather up bodies on Pearl Harbor Day. And and I do, you know, I remember that day. That's probably my first real memory in life is is uh, seeing the planes strafing the airport at uh, at Pearl Harbor. So it's part of my life, and my dad was very proud of it. And actually, he'd been retired for 10 years when they started phoning him, not about the leaks, but about some something. It was before the leaks. So he was in Hana after... 1976 he moved there in 76 and they called him probably 10 years after that to ask about stuff uh, because he knew the the tanks better than anybody and he, he he was happy to participate in that i know he lived to be 87 i think probably he's happy that he missed the the leaking part because that's terrible you know and to, to put them in above the treasured water supply, because Dad was also an engineer on many water projects on Oahu, and he was actually supposed to be the tunnel engineer for the um, for the H3 tunnel. But that was when we we uh, were working at Counter Purposes, and I was very, very much trying to shut down H3 and not build it because I thought it was a travesty to tear up Halava Valley and also uh, Haiku Valley. Well, anyway, he was he was waiting to get this job, and um, a friend of his said, that crazy woman, you know, wouldn't not came with your daughter? <laughs> and uh, Dad said, yeah, well, she does her thing, I do mine. And, you know, we actually had no, you know what I mean? Like, we didn't have a personal problem about it, and and it did get built, but we, we kept it. From being built for quite a while, we were fighting it from gosh, 1971. We were trying to make it not happen. That was H3. Your dad was given an award when they finally acknowledged that it was a civil engineering landmark. Yes, they they named it one of the ten most amazing engineering feats in the world. And uh, I remember sitting in the tents and and dad giving a speech and you know he'd worked on his speech <laughs> um no he was he was very honored you know to and and of course he lived pretty long so he was one of the and he was pretty young when he worked on it so that's why you know as i said years after he retired they were phoning him because he was one of the only people alive who'd been an important you know important person on the on the construction of it. Well, I did uh, see that picture of your dad as a young man uh, standing in water in one of those uh, uh, tunnels. A water tunnel, yeah. yes. Yeah, he I'm, also was the, in, you know, he, remember the, you're, you're too young. Okay, when I was growing up, we talked about the future puka through the poly. It was supposed to eliminate the ridiculous you know, Polly Rose, it was so, you know, that wended its way down the, the uh, steep side of the poly. And um, Dad finally got hired to be the inspection engineer on that one, too. Uh, now, he didn't design it, but he was there to make sure everything was done right. And And in those tunnels, they did a really, really good job because they dug from both sides. And the trick is to make sure you end up in the same spot when you connect them, right? Because you don't want a sharp turn for a person going through a tunnel. Well, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it works, you know. Uh, so as you, I guess, think about everything that your dad did, and you know now uh, that uh, we're going to go into another chapter of the Red Hill facility, what would you like to see done with uh, those tanks and and with that underground Gosh. system? Never have, haven't given any thought to that at all. Um, I wonder if they need to have something in them to to, to hold up or, or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yes. they're, they're a vessel, right? Mm-hmm. They're hollow. Well, somebody suggested uh, opening up one of those tanks for tours because, you know, it would be a, a way to be able to acknowledge the work that went into building them because it was a, an engineering feat. I think that's a good idea, yeah. I do. And people, you know, people who come out 
because their dad was in the Army or the Navy or something and was involved in Pearl Harbor, it could be an extra feature for them to, to investigate. And yeah, I think that's a very good idea. Because so many people contributed to constructing that project, and there really right. isn't anything that people can see to acknowledge the effort that went into that. Right. Well, I mean, even I just have a, this vague memory of, I, I remember more about the speech and, and sitting outside under the tents than I do the tour of that amazing place. But, you know, I, I, had, I had known about it all my life. I'd seen pictures of it. And Dad just referred to it as Red Hill. But my father worked for the Navy at Pearl Harbor for 37 years. A pretty long career. My mother was a little annoyed that he wasn't working for private industry and making lots of money like all his friends. But um, as a civil engineer for the Navy means he wasn't in the Navy, you know. He was hired by the Navy. He worked out of Pearl Harbor, and he did a lot of interesting stuff that he loved his job even after uh, Pearl Harbor because he was flown to places like Kwajalein and Midway. He had something to do with refurbishing um, the planting of some of these islets that had been completely decimated and made into uh, airports and stuff. I'm proud of my dad for, for the work he did, and I'm sure he would be happy that we're not going to pollute the water anymore because water, as I said, leave me, let me leave you with that one. Water is way more important than than uh, jet fuel. That was Lynn Barner nakim who came to Hawaii as a child when her father, a tunnel engineer, was hired to build Red Hill. He also worked on the uh, Pali Tunnel and the H3. Uh, Lynn Barner nakim Punahou graduate, has long carved uh, out a life on the Big Island. Her younger brother, Chuck, is an organic farmer who lives in Maui. To mask or not to mask indoors, that stands to be less of an issue in two weeks as the governor plans to drop the mandate. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats, Joel Lau, joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have me. <laughs> glad to be back. Yeah, so uh, uh, you uh, uh, covered the governor's uh, news conference yesterday uh, making this announcement. I did. I did. It did come as kind of a surprise because I was expecting him to make his announcement closer to the March 25th deadline um, uh, that he set for himself as to whether or not he would extend the mask mandate, but exceeded my expectations and announced it early that he would not be extending the indoor mask mandate. Yeah, and we are the last state uh, in the U.S. to do this. And I know uh, when I checked with the governor's office this week, they said they were getting a lot of inquiries from the national media about, you know, why we were the holdouts. That makes sense. Yeah, we love uh, we love stories about the last place or the <laughs> first place. And, you know, Hawaii is very much has been a outlier in terms of how strictly uh, they've kept their mask mandate and how strictly they were enforcing things like safe access, the uh, vaccine or test mandate to enter restaurants and other places in Oahu and Maui. Um, so, yeah, Hawaii is definitely an outlier and <laughs> was definitely news fodder for many me- national media organizations. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, the governor laid out that, look, we've got what, like 77 percent of our population is fully vaxxed uh, and and our, our our death count is low. Yes, our death count is the lowest uh, uh, per capita. Death mm-hmm. count is the lowest in the U.S. And we have, I think, what was it the last time I checked, sixth highest vaccination rate out of U.S. states. So we are very, you know, looking we're like we're doing very well. And we've been doing very well in this pandemic. Uh, and then we are also were the last state to remove the mask mandate. And then this will happen uh, the same time that the travel uh, requirements are also being uh, loosened on the 25th. Yep. Yep. All the states' uh, COVID restrictions are all kind of ending at the same time when the current emergency proclamation ends midnight on March 25th. So safe acts, uh, safe travels, which is the uh, 
uh, vaccine to avoid the quarantine requirement is ending uh, midnight March 25th, as well as the indoor mask mandate and a couple other state restrictions that uh, they mainly had for state-run facilities. And I know uh, the state health director um, was also uh, uh, at that news conference talking about where some of these mask mandates might still uh, be in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mainly uh, the DOH still recommends masking, indoor masking for schools, so public schools, as well as recommending indoor masking for Things like congregate living settings or hospitals or care homes or prisons and jails. Um, these are all recommendations. Ige did say that the state-run prisons would likely still require masks. Um, but everything else is a recommendation and no longer a mandate. And whether or not to keep masking indoors for schools is ultimately a DOE decision. Um, but there has been progress on that. Uh, recently, the DOE announced that today um, they're ending outdoor masking for uh public schools, which had been in place since the beginning of the school year in August. So there is there is some loosening of rules at, in public schools as well. Yeah. And then we did see uh, private schools early on, you know, uh, uh, move to this uh, as well. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Private schools as well, although the state has less control over private schools than what private schools do. But, yep, I mean, it's kind of confusing in that there are many different levels of recommendations from many different sources. You have CDC recommendations, Department of Health recommendations, Department of Education mandates for their own public schools. It's kind of confusing to navigate all of the sometimes conflicting recommendations. But, yes, uh, private schools have been sometimes doing their own thing. Well, you know, I know I still am uh, carrying my uh, vaccination cards, you know. You know, last night I went to a restaurant, you know, of course nobody checked it, but, you know, had my mask on. And, and uh, yeah, you just – because I guess while these mandates have been relaxed, you know, there there still may be some places who may want to see it. Yeah, and that was a thing that they emphasized. And then uh, Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi also emphasized when he was announcing the end of – the vaccine or test mandate for Oahu, the kind of the emphasis on, you know, personal responsibility and personal choice over your own self and over your own business. So that's part of it. And I think it's definitely a good choice to just in case have a copy of your vaccine card on you if you enter a restaurant that turns out that they are requiring vaccines to enter because, you know, it's up to the restaurant owner. Well, well, uh, this uh, uh, new order, I guess, takes effect in two weeks, there are people that probably think it can't come soon enough that we should just drop it now. Yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of people that also say that we should keep masking. I mean, Hawaii is one of the states that has not had as big of a problem with masking as many other states. Yeah, well, uh, better safe than sorry in everybody's comfort zone. You know, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out in the next couple of weeks. But thanks so much, Joel. Thank you. Uh, that was reporter Joel Lau with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Highway Inn Hawaiian Food in Kaka'ako, Waipahu, and Bishop Museum. Now accepting reservations online for parties of six or more, also shipping packaged dishes to the continental U.S. MyHighwayInn.com It all started with an argument on a bike path. We're enjoying the day. Why are you acting like this? A nanny with three kids versus an angry man. And the nanny gets it all on tape. Karen. I'm going to post it on Facebook. Then the video goes viral, and that angry man turns out to be a police captain on the next reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Arts, Homa Nights, offering entertainment, art experiences, beverages, and bites on Friday and Saturday evenings. Hours and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. This 
This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka, olana, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what Hawaii spot shares a name with a fictional location in a popular television series. Fans of Game of Thrones and the books on which it is based know well the city of King's Landing. It's the capital city of the fictional uh, country Westeros, where the series is set. But even the biggest fan might not know that a real-life King's Landing exists here in the islands. In fact, the two even bear some similarities. The fictional King's Landing was a place of death for several generations of monarchs, and Hawaii's first king came very close to losing his life at the site that now bears that name. That king was Kamehameha I, and that story, which we'll have for you in the second half of the show, involved a canoe paddle and one hard head. But for today's quiz, we want to know the Hawaiian name for King's Landing and its location. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NairitHawaii.com. Do you spell relief in Puna? Well, a new road for one. HBR's Kuve, he joins us to talk about what ails the Big Island community. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Right, so we are talking about extreme traffic congestion along the only route in and out of Puna, from Puna to Hilo, and that's Highway 130. Anyone who lives in Puna knows they've been stuck in traffic, either Pauhana or in the morning. They've seen their daily commutes double or even triple in terms of getting just 10 miles into Hilo. And so Puna Representative Gregor Ilagon uh, introduced legislation earlier this year year that's been seeing some movement at the Capitol to require the State Department of uh, Transportation work with Hawaii County to survey potential alternate routes uh, for Highway 130. And this is something that uh, Puna residents have been hearing about as early as the mid-90s, knowing that this is a rapidly growing community. And so right now, I think the estimate is that uh, that district will grow by about 42,000 residents by 2035. So without that extra alternate route, um, we're at risk of having emergency access for emergency vehicles kind of strained, but also just the overall quality of life for folks trying to get back home. And so for folks who don't live on the Big Island and may not be familiar with the arteries and all, this really has nothing to do with the volcano and any of the damage and the devastation on the roads there? Not necessarily, but when you think about uh, having only one way in and one way out and a potential uh, lava eruption in the area, we are talking again about that emergency access. So in the first, I think it was 2009, a volcanic eruption, Mayor Billy Kinoy at the time had improved part of one road uh, to to take folks in and out of Hawaiian beaches uh, or provide an emergency access route for folks in and out of Hawaiian beaches because of this issue of only having that one road. Should the volcanic, uh, should the volcano or eruption go onto this roadblock, that main artery, we have no other alternative. And so that's part of the conversation uh, as well. But that rapidly growing community is really kind of the factor that uh, folks are looking into. Uh, but, uh, you know, this traffic has uh, had an impact on the quality of life. Uh, Ilagan is hoping House Bill 1403 can help 
map out those uh, best alternative routes and uh, give Hawaii County sort of that research and data to alleviate uh, alleviate traffic there. Now, uh, Iligan does live in Maku'u Drive in Hawaiian Paradise Park, so part of this growing community. And he says there are currently uh, sort of three alternate routes that have been talked about in the past that he knows of. And I actually was able to uh, do a little ride along with him to check out some of these. One is a a beach corridor, which would be closer uh, to the ocean cliff side, a middle corridor, which would go through undeveloped land. We know the challenges there. And then an existing road, uh, Railroad Avenue, which is uh, the the site of the old Hilo Railroad. Railroad route. And so here's uh, Ilagan sort of explaining the challenges with each of these routes. Now the beach corridor has a lot of conservation areas that the road would have to go through. So do we want to have to go through all of that to build out that road? The middle corridor, there's a lot of non-existing road that we would have to pave through. And then closer to Highway 130, which is where railroad is at, there's a pre-existing road, but would that be the most viable option or do we have to link that road up with another road and combine the two? Lots of questions that he's hoping this uh, site survey will answer, uh, but we were able to drive along portions of Railroad Avenue and that was, uh, there was a section that I mentioned earlier that was uh, improved by the Kenoi administration on part of that, but in areas along this road, we it was unpaved, super narrow, looks like a one-way road. There are homes on each side, so any sort of um, need to relocate those homeowners is something Ilagan says he's not willing to do, and, and likely these homeowners will not want to do. So finding uh, those uh, the best data to figure out which route will work is, is sort of the goal of this legislation. Other big landowners nearby that have chimed in on this uh, was the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands, who owns land closer along railroad, closer to town. And a lot of them coming out against it, saying we don't want to take uh, land away from uh, possible homestead offers. And then also Shipman, a big landowner in Pune, who has been opposed mainly uh, over security concerns uh, for their agricultural crops that are in the area. So, yeah, you're not going to make everybody happy. <laughs> they aren't. And, and, and the site survey is really going to take sort of an engineering perspective and a planner's perspective to all of this and then bring in the stakeholders as well later. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, lots to weigh. And then this the bill, though, is advancing. It did. It just crossed over to the Senate last week, and it's awaiting a hearing by uh, the Committees on Transportation and Ways and Means. Okay, but we are cl- uh, cl- closing in on the halfway mark. Right, right. So it, it did move over, and they're they're just waiting for those those uh, hearings in the Senate, and hopefully get some movement there as well. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kuvehi. Wow. We have been talking to HBR's Kuvehi Rishi to read her story on this issue. Check out uh, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. You know, this happens to be National Consumer Protection Week. It's a time set aside by federal and local governments to help people understand consumer rights and learn to avoid fraud and scams. The Hawaii Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs is the state agency tasked with educating consumers and enforcing laws that protect them. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the uh, director of the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, Catherine Awakuni-Colon, to talk about the pandemic's impact on fraud and what resources are available to keep you safe from scams. How has consumer fraud been impacted by the pandemic? Did we see an increase in reported incidents? Did you see new schemes kind of pop up? I think yes to both of those questions. Whenever we have any kind of economic downturn, we DCCA get a little bit concerned because we know that people will be trying to be very creative in scamming people out of their funds. You know, times are a little bit tougher 
And so some of the bad actors will turn to those kinds of bad actions. We see pandemic-specific scams as well. So sometimes people will reach out to say, I know that small businesses are applying for PPP loans, for example, and so they will try to get information from companies about, you know, their bank account numbers or their employees' social security numbers and names and those kinds of things, and then use that for purposes of identity theft or other kinds of ill intent or, you know, terrible purposes. So definitely we've seen an increase and definitely there have been pandemic-specific scams going around. Do you have an idea of where the scams are originating from? Are they local? Are they within the country? Are they coming from outside the U.S.? I don't know if we have enough granularity in terms of the data. We've seen scammers from within the state. Unfortunately, we've seen people targeting local residents from on the mainland and then internationally from international locations as well. And so economic times are tough. Some people turn to this methodology as a means of, you know, making money for themselves. Yeah, it's unfortunate, especially when they prey on people who we know are vulnerable, like our senior citizens. And I know that many scams target seniors and that we have one of the largest senior populations in the country. Is there any anything new on the efforts to protect our kupuna from fraud? You know, I think that's a, a good point that our kupuna tend to be like Kupuna across the nation tend to be targeted. They tend to end up with, you know, those kinds of imposter scams, you know, like the grandparent scam of, you know, grandma, I've been arrested. Please don't tell my father. Please, will you send my attorney $5,000, you know, using like a wire transfer or something like that. But interestingly, millennials are equally... (laughs) have the potential to fall prey to these kinds of scams as well. And so they will fall for different kinds of scams, like they will fall for those kind of paycheck scams of, you know, I will hire you to start this new job and you buy these products or whatever it is. And then I will give you a paycheck, you deposit it, it bounces after you pay out monies to another company. So I think that We have to be mindful of these kinds of scams and attempts to gain access to our personal information, irrespective of what your age is, and just always be on the lookout and on guard as a consumer. Wow, I've been out of the game long enough to not even realize that millennials and Gen Z could be potential targets as well. I wanted to ask you about something, you know, as pandemic news kind of takes a backseat to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Some cybersecurity experts have expressed concern over the potential for increased cyber attacks on consumers. Can you talk about how we can keep our sensitive information safe from cyber criminals during this time? I agree that, you know, we're getting a lot of warnings from folks indicating that we need to be extra careful right now. Definitely, we need people to be careful as they are clicking on texts from phone numbers they don't recognize or clicking on links from emails they don't recognize, opening attachments from people that they don't recognize or it could even be you know spoofed so that you know the person who is sending the email is a person you recognize but if maybe you're not expecting to see an attachment or something like that or for example if somebody calls you and is asking for some credentials either your username or your password just be on guard and don't give up that kind of information Sometimes people will readily turn over information, social security numbers and those kinds of things to people who call and pretend to be the bank or the utility or social security itself. You know, be very wary because those kinds of companies, those kinds of entities won't reach out and ask you, hey, can you give me your social security number? Hey, can you give me your account number or your bank account number? So just be very careful to guard your personal information would be our best recommendation. Be careful what you're clicking on. And you guys have done a great job over the years on educating consumers about fraud and scams. With social distancing limiting the amount of outreach many organizations were able to do in recent years, 
How did your outreach team adapt to pandemic restrictions? What we did is we pivoted more toward offering virtual seminars. This week, as National Consumer Protection Week, we are hosting a virtual set of seminars. We've been doing a lot more in the way of virtual outreach and then, you know, sharing emails with folks who are interested in gaining additional information about how to be a very savvy and safe consumer. Can you talk a little bit about the the workshop that's taking place on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? Yes. So on Wednesday, we will have the IRS Taxpayer Advocate Service and the IRS Criminal Investigation. On Thursday, we will have the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency. And Friday, we will have the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. And I think each session will give folks a great opportunity to think about their particular you know, exposure and, and risk that they may have to various types of scams and learn information about each one of those federal agencies. And I think it's also timely because next month will be the deadlines for our tax returns to be filed and such. And so, you know, there are lots of scams run annually where people will file fraudulent tax returns on behalf of others. They just need a little bit of information where they steal your social security number, file a tax return refund ahead of you filing and can really be very disruptive for you as a taxpayer. Tax schemes, tax scams, very difficult to unravel should you get caught into one. I think educating the public is a big part of helping people avoid becoming victims. There's also the recovery phase. Say someone did fall for a scam or did have their identity stolen. Can you talk about the resources that are available to Hawaii residents if they were ever to become a victim? I agree. That's a very important part is having that knowledge of what do I do now that I have trusted someone who I should not have trusted. There are a lot of good resources on our GCCA website. There are also a lot of great resources for consumers on the Federal Trade Commission website. Consumer.ftc.gov is a really great website, and we will regularly look to that for good information. For example, if you paid a scammer money, how did you pay that scammer money? Was it credit card or a debit card? Then you kind of can take steps to contact that credit card. Did somebody make an unauthorized transfer from your bank account? Then you go to the bank and talk to the bank about the transaction that happened. There's also information that can be reported to the FTC as well. They gather all of that information across the nation and then can share that information with law enforcement agencies, including Honolulu Police Department or you know other county police departments or even the AG's office so that they can work on prosecution of any crimes as well. So I think going to either our website or the FTC's website is a really good place to start in figuring out, okay, what do I do next? Because I've had something really bad happen. We have such a great community here. And I think there may be this notion out there among some people that it's not going to happen to them, especially since we live in such a great place with such a, a great local culture. In comparison to the rest of the nation, do you have an idea on how we rank as a state when it comes to being victims of fraud? Does it happen less frequently here or more frequently here? Can it happen to you compared to if you lived in Chicago or New York? What do our numbers look like? You know, the numbers for Hawaii show that we have this happening at a far higher rate, I think, than we would hope, given, you know, how awesome we are as a state and given that aloha spirit that everybody shares. The challenge is that a lot of these scams can be done very easily from outside the state, from outside the country. Scammers can spoof numbers so that it looks like it's coming from within the state. Folks are very willing to pretend to be somebody they are not and to gain access to your information or your money. Unfortunately, I think 
technology and advances that we've seen really does open us up to lots of great things and we're able to get goods and services from around the world but it also means that we have exposure from around the world as well and so we need to be very careful about who we're dealing with and to make sure that when we are sharing information we're sharing it appropriately CCA Director Catherine Awakuni-Colon talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The department's virtual consumer education fair continues today through Friday. We will have links to the virtual workshops and more on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Hey, this is DJ Mr. Nick inviting you to join me in Generation Listen, an HPR project that connects younger listeners with the station and with each other. Think of it as a welcoming social club with unique and accessibly priced events, engaging conversation, and a diverse group of people. And right now, all of our events are virtual, so they're open to neighbor island people too. Come join us, won't you? Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. Support for HPR comes from Manoa Valley Theater, presenting the comedy The 39 Steps, a mix-up of Alfred Hitchcock's movie, a spy novel, and a dash of Monty Python. Opens this Thursday. Tickets at manoavalleytheater.com. Two million Ukrainians have been forced across the border. All you have left is a little bag, <laughs> and you don't know where to go and your husband is still back in Kharkiv, and you don't know when is the next time you're going to see him, if ever. We'll hear more about the humanitarian and refugee crisis as Russian attacks in Ukraine intensify. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. As we turn the corner on two years of this pandemic, many of us are anxious to put our fears of the coronavirus to bed, thanks to life-saving treatments like vaccines and antiviral medications. But not all creatures have the best medical minds at their disposal to combat disease. They have to let evolution do its thing. Uh, Gabrielle Names is an evolutionary ecologist with the University of California at Davis. She was here in the islands investigating why some native amakihi, a honeycreeper found on Hawaii Island, seems to have greater resistance to avian malaria than others. The amakihi on Hawaii Island are all the same species. So you may see some down in Puna, you may see some all the way up on Mauna Kea, but scientists were able to study by looking at components of their genetics, and they were able to identify that these populations are distinct. Now, that doesn't mean that if we brought them into the lab and wanted to do captive breeding, that they wouldn't be able to breed. But we do know that these populations at high and low elevation are distinct from one another. They're not doing big elevational movements like we can see with the EEV, the Apopane as well. But the Amakihi pretty much stays kind of in the below canopy and doesn't do those types of movements. So that's another reason why it's special to study for this type of project, because we really have a, a natural experiment on Hawaii. We have populations at high elevation that have never been exposed to avian malaria, and then populations at low elevation that have experienced a really strong selection by the disease. Uh, names found that those uh, makihi at lower elevations fared better when exposed to avian malaria than their cousins at higher elevations. But the question still stands, why? 
Well, one clue has to do with the level of antibodies that each bird population has. So I did find that natural antibodies were higher in low elevation birds, but you knew there was going to be a but, but only in some low elevation populations. And so we found that on the dry side of the island at Manuka, I found that those birds had about the same level of natural antibodies as the high elevation birds. But on the wet side, down in Pune, in, at low elevation, I found that those birds had higher levels of natural antibodies compared to the high elevation birds. So we see that there may, in fact, be not only differences in looking at high and low, but potentially also looking at the wet or dry side of the island. There may be different things going on um, based on potentially different degrees of selection by the disease. When we're looking at infection rates, for example, well, 100% of the, the low elevation birds on the wet side down in the Pune area were infected with avian malaria, whereas on the dry side, only about 30% of birds were infected. So we see that there's, there's something different that may be going on. That's good news for the Amakihi, but will this evolutionary approach work for other birds? Name says it's unlikely evolution is going to take a lot longer. Even if, let's say, uh, we could see the same thing in let the EEB or the Acheopola owl, if they're going to be moving those longer distances, we won't see evolution happen as quickly. So I think that while it is important to understand what's going on in the Amakihi, understanding what it's doing may not be the answer to conserve all of the Hawaiian honey creepers because they have different behaviors and characteristics um, that can affect whether evolution could act on them in the same way it has the Amakihi. We know that this isn't the last disease that's going to be introduced to, to Hawaii, avian malaria and avian pox. Certainly, unfortunately, that's just the, the globalized world we're in. More diseases will eventually probably get to, to the Hawaiian islands the same way that COVID has spread across the world. And so as a result, I think that the information that, that I have gained from my study will help us to better understand how to manage these populations over time. That was evolutionary ecologist uh, from UC Davis, uh, Gabriel Names. She was talking about new research on what makes the native Amakihi more resistant to avian malaria. And we're revisiting our Manu Minute on the Amakihi with University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart. In Ohia forests all over the Big Island, you can hear the song of the Hawaii Amakihi. It's one of over 50 species known as Hawaiian honeycreepers that all trace their ancestry to a single finch that came from Asia to Hawaii over 5 million years ago. Amakihi forage for nectar and insects, and sometimes even fly into neighborhoods in Puna and Kona. In traditional Hawaiian culture, their yellow and green feathers were used in beautiful ahuula, or feather cloaks, worn by the ali'i. And in stories, their calls were often seen as the scolding voice of reason. Because mosquitoes are not native to Hawaii, many honeycreepers don't have a natural resistance to mosquito-transmitted diseases like avian malaria. But lucky for us, the Amakihi is one of the few that does. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to tell us the Hawaiian name and location of the island's real-life King's Landing. It was made famous before Kamehameha unified the islands. As a young chief, he was large, intimidating, and aggressive. After raiding a coastal village, he came across commoners fishing along the shoreline. 
He attacked the fishermen, but during the struggle caught his foot in a crevice. One of the fleeing fishermen took the opportunity to hit Kamehameha on the head with a large paddle. The impact split the paddle and left Kamehameha unconscious but alive. After being left for dead, the future king eventually came to and returned home. You probably know the story as the law of the splintered paddle. It is said that this event greatly influenced Kamehameha's attitude toward the common people during his rule, reminding him human life was precious and well-deserved uh, respect. And it was wrong for the powerful to mistreat those who may be weaker. And it happened at Papaibe uh, in uh, Hawaii Island's Puna District, which is also the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And we had no winners. Do you have a, an idea for a quiz you'd like to share? Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. We was down side looking for a sacrifice. When my va'a hit the sand, the levita up and ran. True to holler to the fields, up a hoi hoi concealed. All the puka in the rock, I got stuck. No, the stranger is falling, he's stuck in the lava and waving his arms like a play of crap. Go back with your paddle and strike him right after you tackle him just like a fish in the net. Kalele, he hit him hard. Kalele, he struck him down right to the ground. Kalele, he hit him fast. Kalele, he made him blast. Well, we have to go now. But up tomorrow, we'll get the latest on the point-in-time count of the homeless. What do you think about dropping the mask mandate? Not soon enough? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.